Spencer, last week we talked about Strava's new podcast, Athletes Unfiltered, and its second episode called Rising from the Ashes, the amazing story of Austin Reba and his trail curl project. Uh, this week, let's talk about another one of the stories in the Rising from the Ashes episode, and that is about Steve Johnson, a disabled veteran who has battled through so much adversity and uh, medical setbacks, yet he continues to ride his bike. What are your takeaways from this story? I've got one really big takeaway, Fred, and that is if I ever feel like I'm having a bad day, I just think about Steve's story because, man, this guy has persevered through so much. He had uh, just all these medical issues. He had rheumatoid arthritis, cancer. He had just a severe broken leg from a mountain bike crash. I mean, this guy's been through it all, and he still is... He's still riding. He's still keeping it together and trying to trying to do what he does best. Yeah, I'm with you. Whenever I am going to be feeling low, not like I want, like I would not. I don't want to ride my bike. I'm just going to think of Steve because uh, just a really motivational story. And again, that is episode two, rising from the ashes of Strava's Athletes Unfiltered podcast. Give it a listen, and thanks to Strava for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. We're back. We're back with the Velo News podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer in the bowels of the Velo News World Headquarters here in Boulder, Colorado. It's a sunny day outside, about, about to snow. We're going to have to get the fat bikes out again. Uh, joined this week by Spencer Paulison. Hey, Fred. Hey, Spencer. How are you, buddy? Fine. Yeah, it's good. creepy, creepy when you talk <laughs> yeah, to me like right. that, but whatever. And uh, in the chair to my right is Chris Case, managing editor. Chris. Did you you rode your bicycle this past weekend, right? Always, yes. Yeah, was it 100 miles, 200 miles? No, just 80. It was actually a struggle for me to get out and do 80. Yeah. I've been running a lot more. These running? Days. Yeah, I know. Oh, how dare Isn't you? Isn't that crazy? Uh, we have a great episode this week. In the first part of the episode, we're going to break down all the action from the Cyclocross World Championships in Bogenza. Bogenza? Bogenza? Bogenza. Bogenza. Bilbo Bogens. Bilbo Bogenza. <laughs> we saw some awesome, uh, just exciting edge of your seat action. Crashes, um, not surprising winners, but uh, dramatic, uh, dr- dramatic racing. And the second half of the show, we have a real treat. Um, we have an interview with the Tour de France champion himself, Ooh. Garrett Thomas. Spencer caught up with Garrett Thomas in Southern California a few weeks ago to talk about uh, his book his memories from this past year's Tour de France, all sorts of different things, and uh, we are going to check in with Garrett. Spencer, how set the scene. What was it like interviewing Garrett Thomas? Well, as you might expect, the, the winner of the sport's biggest race, he... He started to live, I think, a little bit of a life of luxury. He, we, I met with him at the Soho House in Malibu, California, which is a super ex- exclusive members, members only, only members only club. Um, you know, I had to rent a, a Bugatti so that I wouldn't stand out in the parking lot. Walked in, met him upstairs. Nice little view, looking over the Pacific Ocean. People out walking with their dogs and mm-hmm. kids on the beach. And uh, afterwards, I dug into a delicious uh, brunch spread that they laid out. That I don't think I was technically <laughs> nice. allowed to eat, but I. Uh, hey, hey, Garrett the told perks me to, of journalism. Garrett told me he said, "quote unquote, smash the brunch," and I said, <laughs> "Yes, sir." Uh, to get into the Soho House, did you have to put on like a monocle or some leather boots or just something like fancy guy suit? I went with the, to... I went I went with the tech bro disguise. Okay, I just you know some distressed jeans, a little T-shirt. And, uh, you know, the old Apple earbuds, and I just pretended like I was really distracted. Yeah, you're like, I invented Blurbicon. Yeah. Yeah, look it up. 
Don't we Google just, it, bing it. We just went public. <laughs> uh, well, we can't wait to get to Garrett Thomas and his interview. Uh, guys, before we break down um, the cyclocross action, we do have to reference a not-so-happy uh, story that happened this past week. We wrote about it on the site, and that is the affair with Ilio Caixa in Argentina. Um, you know, If you want a full catch-up on what happened, read it on the site. Long story short, Ilio Caixa of Dakuna Quickstep snapped a photo with a fan, made a lewd gesture with the fan. He was kicked out of the race. Dakuna Quickstep's management kind of backed him up. There was a big brouhaha. Um, again, we don't have to dig into all the gory details, but just let's offer some takeaways from this before we get into the into the cross action. Spencer, what's your take? My take, just having watched this all unfold and seeing Dakuna Quickstep kind of eat the trash for a while before finally apologizing on Friday. My take is just that cycling is really similar to a lot of mainstream sports out there that that have these scandals, that have these moments of bad behavior on the part of the athletes. And I think that sometimes, at least personally, because I am a cyclist and I participate, I, f- I feel like maybe our sports, I, 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 I feel like it's maybe a little immune to that sort of thing sometimes. I'm a little close to it. But now when you see this sort of thing happen, you realize, yes, this is still a pro sport. There are still athletes that probably feel a little entitled and sometimes act badly. And I think we should just all be vigilant for this sort of thing and we should continue to continue to hold them to a higher standard because they should be held to a higher standard they are role models in our sport they're very visible they're powerful and it's not okay for someone like Ilio Kaisa to basically harass this uh this 19 18 year old uh cafe employee coming in hot with a take chris do you have a take to offer up to the uh, good the good people today? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it, to reiterate uh, what Spencer has said, it's just it was just a, a the the quintessential poor steps taken. the The things they did just made things worse. It, it just showed this chauvinistic attitude, really, and that's sad and uh, something that. Like like Spencer said, we got to be vigilant to get stuff like this out of the sport, to get this this strange attitude of entitlement or chauvinism out of the sport. Uh, I'm with you guys. I mean, I don't think anyone supports this type of behavior. Uh, my whole thing is, you know, cycling is making a very public global push to appeal to women. It is trying to grow the women's side of the sport. It is, uh, you know, USA Cycling is trying to make open up, you know, cycling and participatory cycling to more women. It's a male-dominated sport. We need more women in the sport. And when you see something like this happen, it, um, you know, it doesn't fully torpedo those efforts, but it really is, it, you know, it stands in the face of what the sport is trying to do from a 50,000 foot level. So, um, I, you know, there needs to be repercussions and yeah, if, you know, pro cyclists need to hold themselves to higher regard, our sport is really trying to, um, advance its image and bring in more people, whether it's women, men, minorities, whatever. And the athletes, um, need to be respectful of that. Okay. Moving on. Let's get to all the action from cyclocross worlds on Sunday in the men's elite race. We saw Dutch phenomenon Matthew Vanderpool take, I believe, this is his second elite world championship title. Yes, um, it was not particularly close. He was really good. Chris, you watched this race. <laughs> He's the, always really yeah. good. What's your What's your breakdown of the race? Take me through it. So uh, the course lend itself to sort of group racing a lot in the in the early stages of of many of the races. So there was. There was it was fast, but it, there weren't um, those places where 
uh, it was it was separating the the group out in the in the probably first two three laps of the race, and you could see Matthew being patient like he has been in the past, and you could see some of the expected players come to the front. But it really it really came down to that crux moment when there was this off camber section. Um, Matthew was riding it incredibly smooth. He made it look incredibly easy. You could see everybody else, honestly, every in every other race, struggling on that section. And Matthew was giving it a little gas, and and wow, uh, Van Aert was the was on his wheel, and he he tried to ride it that first time uh, when the when the mistake happened, and his back wheel slid out, the gap opened up. Matthew took advantage of that. You could. You can see this was a great example of what confidence can do for an athlete or what it, how it can shatter somebody's confidence in a mistake like that. Every other lap after that, Wout would not ride that section. He, he, it was in his head that he was going to mess it up again or he couldn't do it. It wasn't that, – that mistake was the race in a sense, but Vanderpool, you could see him – from his technical skills, from his physical skills, from his mental, from a mental standpoint, he was far superior. And that was like every other race except for two this entire season. He DNF'd one race early, and he came in 21st <laughs> at Copenburg Cross because he was on a tremendously off day. Every other race, 27, he won this year. Yeah, Vanderpool, I mean, capping off just a complete dominant year. Um, I, I watched this race too, and I, I was completely blown away by that, uh, by his ability to ride that off-camber section. Wasn't a long section. I mean, it was what, like 25 feet? Not far at all, but in the women's race, that's where a ton of slip-out slides and crashes happen. And then in the men's race, it was so evident that all the men were having to dismount and ride it. And Vanderpool didn't just ride it, he, look, he made it look like the sidewalk. Yeah. He made it look like he was riding on flat ground. And for all we can say about how strong he is, how dominant he is, just his ability to look smooth on some of the trickier sections of this course really, really stood out to me. And the interesting thing, too, for me was hearing on the broadcast that he was on the same tire setup as Wout Van Aert. And so perhaps there's a little difference in the pressure selection, but regardless, there, there shouldn't have been a significant advantage or disadvantage when it comes to the actual equipment they're on. And the one other thing I'd add, going back to what you were saying about this being a, a more of a group race, Chris, is I personally was a little disappointed by this course. There was a very extended section of pavement going into the finish or the start finish, yeah. I should say. Yeah. And that really lent itself to the the, the groups sort of regrouping yeah. uh, after a selection was made maybe early in the race. It certainly happened in the women's race. I think it happened a little in the men's race too. I, I just wish they'd found a way to incorporate a few more technical elements to this course because as it was, it just came down to that single off-camber section and – yeah, the races were fairly exciting, but I feel like this falls short of being a real proper world championship level course in my yeah. mind. It, it, I think wind played a part uh, in helping people play a little cat and mouse, not want to drive into the into the wind on that on that straightaway. So that helped or uh, hurt the racing a little bit and helped things come back together again and again. It's interesting. A lot of people were saying a lot of a lot of the winners. Of course, the winners were going to say they liked the course more than people that lost on the course. But I was surprised that they were saying such uh, such good things about the course because from a from a fan perspective, I thought it it did lend itself to less exciting racing than 
than it could have been. So last year we had the much anticipated battle between Wout and Vanderpool and Wout won decisively. What are the big differences, the big takeaways uh, this year compared to last year? What are the, what are the big differences that we saw? I mean, the conditions were just completely different. This was a fast race. They were, I think, I would imagine they were probably running intermediate tread tires. It wasn't very muddy at all. It was a little slippery, I think, partly probably due to the humidity coming off of the off the ocean there, that sort of thing. But I mean, looking back to last year's race, which was just an absolute mud fest. I mean, there's there are night and day difference, and I think generally, I think generally that the, the uh, kind of common wisdom is that. Wow, Van Aert's a little better when it's a heavy day of mud racing, and that's kind of how it was at the uh, World Championships in in Valkenburg last year. But uh, this year, I think Vanderpool was able to really use his his top end power, which uh, I think still is better than Van Aert. I, I mean, it's also just a different year. Wout Wout wasn't Vanderpool dominated most of the races last year too but at the end of the season you could see that while it was coming back to him a little bit and beat him in some some races later in the year nobody has beaten Vanderpool this entire year I mean it was his race to lose as they say um he's just on another level uh, another uh, moment of dramatics happened towards the end of the race when Toon Ertz had actually mm-hmm. ridden his way into second place and was looking to have a just a really impressive finish on his end I mean he ended up third that's still impressive uh, but anyway he slips out in a corner allowing Wout van Aert to ride back into second uh, what was your what were your feelings and your analysis of that moment I, I didn't really have a strong preference one versus the other. I think I, they're both fine riders. and I don't, I'm not like a, an avid Toon Ertz fan, nor am I like, you know, <laughs> going to live and die by Wout Van Aert's results. But I was excited to have, have some action in that final lap. As you'd said, uh, Van Aert, or excuse me, Vanderpool fl- pretty much flown the coop. You knew he was going to win. So to see Toon Ertz kind of hoving into view was that was exciting. It gave gave us a little bit of an unexpected finale there in the final lap, and then to see him slide out on on that corner and crash like that, definitely a disappointment, but but surprising. And I think it gave us some of the drama we were hoping for in that final lap. It's just unfortunate for Toon Ertz that it came down to a mistake like that. But I will say that there's probably some things that that contributed to that mistake in part he was he burnt a lot of matches early in that race i think he was quite a, quite strong overall he may be stronger than van Aert just purely in terms of his efforts um, but you know those add up and those affect your technical skills when it comes down to the end of a race that's over an hour for the for the winner an hour nine for vanderpool which is extremely long for yeah. a cross race and to have the two-time reigning world champion breathing down your neck that's gonna that's going to change the way you ride if you've got a couple second gap on him and you're trying to trying to get your best ever world championship results. Uh, it's regardless of whether he's a fellow Belgian or not. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Chris? Do you think Toon Ertz is going to be uh, nipping at the top step here in another I, year or two? I, I do. I think I think you may have said it somewhere. Vanderpool focusing on uh, mountain bike in the run up to Tokyo. Van Aert sort of moving over to road maybe a bit more. Toon Aert's may be the next king of, of cyclocross if he doesn't do either of those things and focuses solely on cyclocross. So yeah, regardless of that, 
he's had a breakthrough year. He's won World Cups. He was very close to beating Wout in the overall in the World Cup. Or he did. He did. So I'm, so, yeah. I'm sorry. So he he held off Wout. Um, big big effort in that final World yes, Cup race. That's right. In, that's uh, right. In in Hoogerheide, and it was yeah. That so was I mean, he's he's right there. And in fact, uh, I would say that win tally or, or results wise, he was better than Wout this year. Oh, definitely. I would totally so, agree with that. Yeah. The yes. tune, man, man named Tune. Looney yeah. Tunes. Looney Tunes. Going to be winning cross races in the future. Uh, well, that was the elite men's race. There are highlights online. I recommend everyone check it out if you haven't watched it. Um, super fun race, but not as fun. Not nearly as fun as the elite women's race. Saturday, I woke up early. I was sitting on my couch. Um, the dog was staring at me, asking me through his dagger-like eyes to go walk him. I said, no, dog, we have to watch the elite women's race. And we did, and he was very upset and whined a lot. Uh, elite women's race, Sana Kant wins her third consecutive world title. I called it last week. You did. I chose Sana Fair Kant. play, fair play. And I Matthew Van- Vanderpool. Uh, I called Vanderpool, too. Ooh, I called it first. Right. You know, you know. <laughs> uh, Who didn't? <laughs> Sana Kant wins... Chris, give me the breakdown of this women's race. Well, again, you you saw a lot of group racing. Um, and in fact, the group racing lasted almost to the very end of the race in this case. Uh, they were There were several Dutch ladies, Betsema, uh, Anna-Marie Wurst, um, Lucinda Brand, Mariana Voss. You had Sana Kant. You had um, this... this uh, inability for any one rider or inaction on any one rider's part or team's part for that matter to take control of the race and so they come into that long paved straightaway that maybe there was a headwind but it just kept coming back together and coming back together um you saw some mistakes out of some key riders including and particularly lucinda brand before she had her incident in the pit where her father grabbed the bike and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more she was making some mistakes here and there, here and there, and, and all of those things add up because you got to come back from that and you got to burn some matches to come back from that. So eventually, eventually, Sana Kant took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and, and set off on her own. And that was honestly what she needed to do and it was very successful and she rode very smoothly she was technically probably the best in the race and she had the power to to hold off everybody in the end even though lucinda was coming back she had that that power um she just didn't have the technical skills to match it so one against many an individual versus a team Sonicant versus all of uh, the Netherlands, it seemed like. Yeah, we had Dutch women going second through fifth place behind oh, Sonicant. Brutal. And then Sophie Dubois was ninth just for good measure. It, so, they, yeah, they're uh, good at cyclocross. On the broadcast, they were, uh, they were um, referencing that time Ian Standard outrode the like four or five yeah. quick step guys yeah. that he was up against. And yeah. it was, you know, it was like, how does a team. Do that. Go ahead. Well, similar to that moment, I think we can be critical of the Dutch team's riding. Look, second through fifth place, chapeau to them. That's great finish. As a team, they showed their dominance, but they had the opportunity to win, and it really felt like there were a few moments, um, irregardless of the crashes, where just their decisions on the field of play did not... Uh, catered to a, a Dutch victory. I'm thinking early on when Anna Marie Verst and Denise Betsema were, were pushing the pace at the front of the group, um, 
yet Lucinda Brand and Mariana Voss were trying to chase back on. And it was, that was a moment where I was like, ah, what, are you, what are you doing, you know? And then there were a couple modes where I really expected them to employ road tactics and to go, you know, one by one, start attacking Sanakant. And, you know, maybe the course itself just wasn't conducive to that type of riding. But for whatever reason, um, that I didn't see that dynamic play out. Yeah, I agree with you, Fred. There's definitely some questions I have about the tactics of it. Now, you know, the disclaimer is that cyclocross, it's very difficult to execute team tactics in a cyclocross race. But when it comes to armchair uh, quarterbacking, Monday morning or Tuesday morning, whatever day it is, <laughs> yeah, I, I would have liked to see, at the very least, I would have liked to see the Dutch team put a rider on the front of that lead group and control it a little more because they were putting Sonic Hunt on the front of that group. And that really gives her about every advantage she could ask for being a lone rider against a team of at least four others in the front group. Because, you know, if, if Kant makes a mistake, it's okay. She probably can hop on the wheel of the next rider if she gets passed. If she feels great and accelerates, that'll put the other riders under pressure. If one of the riders behind her makes a mistake, that'll mess up the other Dutch woman. And who knows what the order is back there. Like you said earlier, Brand was a little far back in the group, made some mistakes, and was in trouble at certain points. So, yeah, I'd say you got Mariana Voss there. She can easily take the front of this group and control it. Put her in that role and have her do that because, you know, you've got plenty of cards to play. So Lucinda Brand finishes second place. She was obviously on great form. She won the World Cup in Hoogerheide the week before. Um, really just a breakthrough season this year. I mean, she's been a good cyclocross rider for a while, but I believe she won two World Cups this year. Three, three I think. Three World yep. Cups. So, you know, we she had some problems in this race. She slipped out. Uh, noticeably a few times on the off-camber section, but then the real coup de grace happened in this pit exchange with her father. Chris, take me through the uh, the, the pit exchange scene around the world. Yeah, well, uh, cyclocross is a chaotic event. <laughs> Pits, even more so. Um, late in the race, you're cross-eyed. Um, what you see on, on the, the footage is she comes into the pits, Someone, it turns out to be her dad, but her, her catcher, so to speak, takes the bike from her. She's holding onto the bars. She's not unclipped. She gets pulled into the ground and, and crashes and then quickly gets up, gets back on her, uh, her second bike and out she goes. But she loses some time. Um, to me, so it turns out that it's her dad. She says that she, she blames her dad, but she's going to forgive him so that they can have Christmas dinner together in the future. Very important. <laughs> Christmas dinner. Um, personally, I don't necessarily believe it was entirely his fault. I think it was maybe both of their faults to some degree. I think may maybe he did grab it. She said that he grabbed it a little early. I think that if that's the case, she also held on a little too much or didn't unclip the way she should have and been prepared for him to take the bike. Again, you're cross-eyed. It, it's, it's, it's just an unfortunate thing that happened, um, but it can happen. And this is definitely armchair. This is armchair pitting right here. Yes, oh, yeah, for yep. sure. Well, let's get into it then. Like, yeah. I, I would agree with you, Chris, and say for Lucinda, her homework is to anticipate a little more. Yeah unclip a little sooner and be ready for it and for her dad he should probably think about 
a softer catch. Mm-hmm. Remember, when you're rolling into a pit and dismounting like that, the bike's still moving, it's still rolling, it's still gonna balance, at least for a little bit. Worst case scenario, it tips a little and he can catch it. Uh, he doesn't have to grab it super hard and super quick, and certainly not in this instance because there was no rider behind her. Sometimes it gets a little crazy if there's two riders coming in at the same time. The pit crew has to be yeah, you very pull quick. That, pull the bike exactly. out of the way. You got to get out of the way as fast as possible. We even have, I think, I think the Hoogerhide World Cup. We saw a collision in the pit where, mm-hmm. where two riders came in and the pit crew didn't grab the bike well enough and they crashed. So yes, there are instances we have to be very aggressive with the grab. But in this case, I mean, he, she could have just ghost-ridden it, basically, yeah. and it would have been fine. Yep. It's, a, it, it's a big, big moment. You're on the biggest stage of the whole cross calendar. Everyone's nerves are on edge. You can understand how it happened, but it's really unfortunate. Yep. Uh, we recommend uh, going to your local library, checking out Mark Legg's uh, series of videos on how to pit uh, episodes 1 through 96. I think it's a 96-part <laughs> thing. No, I, bo- I heard that Katie Compton had the same thing happen to oh, her no. in the race. Well, I don't know that for sure, but I Helen Wyman on the broadcast said that that may have happened to her. Maybe too, it so. was just a bad day for Pitten. You know, sometimes that happens. Bad medicine. Uh, Well, it was a phenomenal race. Congrats to all of the participants. Uh, Before we get out of here with Crosstalk, you guys watched the U23 men's race. Uh, Just give me a little little taste of Tom Pidcock and his uh, impressive riding. Well, Chris watched it. Uh, Yeah, no, I I thought it was awesome. I mean, just watching him, he's so relaxed. He's so calm. He sat back. He let that group racing do the group racing thing. He was patient, um, two, three laps in. He took a second bike. He's at the back of a, a train of a lot of riders. His main rival, Ellie Ezerbit, notices that he's back there and attacks hard. And um, Pidcock worked his way past a couple people. They get to that long straightaway, and it was unreal how he closed the gap to Ellie Ezerbit and then blew past him till... Ezerbit's face just melted off of his body. And it was the moment. It was the moment. He just completely crushed him mentally and physically and rode away from the race from there on. It was awesome. Congrats to Tom Pidcock. <laughs> just attacking the cross course. Baby Vanderpool. Yeah, well, he's dual threat as well. He, he races for Team Wiggins on the road. He was even sixth in a stage of the Tour of Britain last year. So he's no joke. And Maybe he's maybe he's gonna end up just doing road because certainly seems like he's got the talent. He got he's got the engine for it. Yep. Well, cross season done and dusted. Before we've put the final bow on it, let's check in with our good pal Professor Cyclocross. He's tweeting some stats today. Ooh, World Championships Goenza confirmed the season's trend. Men's well, this is for Flem- Flemish TV ratings lowest in ten years for the first time for the men's race and Mm. for the women's race, highest in 10 years. Wow. Yeah, so now the women's audience, 82% of the men's audience. That's great. Yep. I mean, it's not good that the men's race is down, but it's good that good the women's, the women's racing is getting more exposure. People are more excited to watch it. Yeah, that's good stuff. Okay, well, uh, it's time. It's time to, uh, it's almost time to get to Mr. Garrett Thomas. I know you've been listening through this crosstalk to hear what uh, Garrett has to say. Uh, Spence, before we get to Garrett Thomas, just a little bit of rapping about his book. So he has his new book, The World According to G, out now. It was out in European markets a few months ago. It is now out in American markets. The Tour According to G. The Tour actually. According to G. The, the tour, tour According to G. According to G. Uh, you and I both took a spin through this book. Um, what are your takeaways? My takeaways are that Garen Thomas is 
it's pretty hard to rattle him. He he's very even keeled. He's very cool. He's he's got perspective. He gets frustrated by some things throughout the course of this 2018 tour that he won. We've heard about those in the headlines, such as Team Sky telling him that they wouldn't wait for him in the team time trial, and Team Sky withholding an air conditioner from him when it was really hot in the Alps, and uh, of course also this incident toward the end of the tour when Chris Froome said he wanted to attack on one of the pivotal mountain stages. Garrett Thomas. Garen Thomas, he he saw this happen. He got a little annoyed with it, but he let it slide and he he moved on. He focused on what he had to do. He focused on the race. Um, but he's he's not afraid to, to to air these grievances, though. That's the thing about this book is there are a lot of pro cycling books that I think they that the, the writers will gloss over some of the juicy details. He he just puts it all out in the open and he lets it speak for itself. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I talked to him about that actually in this interview. And he he's just he says, hey, you know, this is how I like to do things. This is how I like to do interviews. I don't really want to dance around stuff or have a, a PR script that is handed to me. I want to just I just want to be straight up about it. He just, he's just, he's just a nice bloke you have a pint with down at the pub. Yeah, I'm with you. I think a very telling section is early on in the book where he is addressing his media persona and how in, in you know, in past situations he had been asked by the PR to say, say something, say a kind of a canned statement. And he's just like, I can't do that. I'm really bad at that. I can't do that. And so he's just like, I, I have to, I have to be me. Um, I, I'm with you. I thought he was very um, revealing with some of his interior thoughts. Um, you know, I covered that tour. I was at a lot of these stages. I was talking to him at finish lines in the scrum. I was, you know, seeing him at the beginning. I, you know, I was in this uh, big press conference that he references on the, the second rest day where he's sitting by the world's smallest swimming pool. I was like, yeah, it was the world's smallest swimming pool. I was there too. <laughs> Hot tub? Um, no, it was like a te- it was like a mini pool, huh. like a teeny pool. Um, Weird. But Garrett, you know, to to see his um, interior, to read his interior thoughts, I thought was very interesting because, yeah, there was a lot of uh, comments being put out there by Brailsford, by Chris Froome, by the team saying, hey, everything is simpatico. We're all on the same page here. But for him to then write, actually, we did. We hadn't really talked about stuff. Yeah, they, they really didn't communicate as much as you would imagine yeah, they would. This, you know, while I was at the tour, I was envisioning, okay, they're having these meetings in the hotel room every night, and they are communicating things like how to be, you know, how are we going to manage, you know, these different types of situations, and how are Chris and Garrett going to be on the same page? And to have him say, well, actually, we weren't really doing any of that. Um, every mm-hmm. now and again, you know, a few days there were meetings, and they would talk about it. But, um, you know, it was... It was, it was not as organized as one might think. And then, to me, the really telling moment is the, I believe it's stage 17. Um, this was the stage, this was the, the super short stage. Yeah. And, quartet. Um, Cold de Portet. Cold de Portet. And it's the night before the stage, and the whole team Sky, they're, in, they're having one of these meetings. And Garen Thomas is in yellow, and he has a pretty good lead. And Chris Froome says, okay, guys, I'm going to attack at the base of the final climb. And Garen Thomas is thinking to himself, that makes no sense if our goal is to keep my jersey. Um, I am in the lead of the Tour de France. This is one of the last hurdles. Why are you going to attack? But he just thinks it. He doesn't really stand up for himself. And team management is all on board with Chris Froome. And there's this interesting moment where Garrett Thomas has to process it. And he has to basically go from what the F is going on to, okay, you do that. 
we'll see what happens. I'm going to be a good soldier. And he takes you through his interior thoughts. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and just imagine if those roles were reversed, right? If Chris Froome was in yellow going into that day and Garen Thomas was close, but not that close. And he sits, stands up in the team meeting and says, okay, guys, here's my plan. I'm going to attack. Chris Froome will be like, oh, I don't think that's such a good idea, uh, lad. Garen, <laughs> oh, uh, I don't think that's wise. Really throw the cat amongst the pigeons if you were to do that. Well, again, the, um, the book is called The Tour According to G., with Garrett Thomas. The tour according to G. Didn't I say the tour according to G? No. The world according to G? <laughs> it's the tour according to G. Uh. With Garrett Thomas. Let's get to hear Mr. Garrett Thomas. All right, so we're here with Garrett Thomas. G, oh, which yeah. is easier for me to say. Yeah. <laughs> and we're here in Malibu, California. Thanks. The beach. The beach is looking beautiful. The rain's gone away. So you seem to come here to train fairly often now to come to Southern California. Uh, when did that start? What's, uh, talk to me about your relationship with this area, your, your history with this area. Well, it kind of started, I wanted to do something different. So I've done <clears throat> tour down under six or seven years in a row and um, it was really good. They worked well for me, but I just wanted a bit of a change. And, um, you know, traditionally the team, if you don't do down under here in Mallorca and um, kind of done that. Uh, every year at least once for the last sort of 17 years so I was like I can't be going there again like two three times a year so wanted to change spoke to a few guys and heard they was quite good out here my wife has a cousin here so we got a few family members and Cameron Worth the Ironman triathlete uh, trains a bit here so yeah last year I thought why not give it a go and it worked really well obviously and um, so yeah I wanted to come back again and it's nice it's, you you know, it's eight hours time difference from the UK. You're kind of just away from everything. And um, yeah, like uh, it's great training for me, um, you know, other than the rain for this week, but um, it was still wasn't cold. And uh, yeah, the, the climbs, you kind of get everything you need for January. So, and then obviously there's, there's stuff you can do on the time trial bike up and down PCH. So um, yeah, for this month to, to really get that big workload and it's ideal. Yeah, get to catch some Lakers games too. I saw I saw that. And yeah, yeah, it was just meet been, Fat Joe. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, so weird because uh, yeah, when I was in school and things like you know I was really into hip hop and yeah, just to bump into Fat Joe in the corridor was just mad. So I thought oh, I gotta get a picture. But um, I take yeah, it you didn't know who you were. No idea, <laughs> no idea. But uh, yeah, just been really lucky. That's one of the biggest changes really since obviously winning the tour. Like get to go courtside at the Lakers game and went to the Rams game as well at yeah. the like the the playoff one before. Right. Uh, so it was just a really cool. And uh, you know, it's just I love America as well. It's just so different to the UK. It's um, everyone's just a lot happier. It seems, especially in California. Anyway. Yeah, it's a nice place. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it's just a, a nice place to hang out. And, and you know, once you've done your training, I was doing five, six hours on the bike and my wife's family were here for the first two weeks. So she wasn't just sort of sat around waiting for me to come home type of thing. It was, so everyone had, was had a really good time. Yeah. Well, it's exciting for us Americans. Uh, your book will be coming out here soon. I've gotten a chance to read it. I really enjoyed it actually. It's- um, Thanks. You know, a lot of cyclists in their books, they tend to kind of gloss over tension or they're, they're a little withholding of some of the details that we're all really curious about. Um, but you really dug into it, especially, you know, this tension that you felt maybe with Team Sky's management, um, the situation with Chris Trum and the Tour de France. 
Why did you choose to go there with your book? You could have just could have yeah. left it out, right? Yeah, but like you say, you know, I think a lot of books are just seem to be a bit wishy-washy and, and not honest and stuff. And that's what the one thing I always try to do whenever doing interviews and just wanted to cover everything that happened in the tour really and exactly how I felt and how it was. So, yeah, just tried to uh, put that down really. And um, I, I don't regret it, but the only thing now is just it just gets so many... I can just tell that so many questions are just going to be about through me now all the way to the tour. So it's kind of, yeah, made my own bed for that. But um, it's actually, yeah, I, I enjoy doing it. And for, it's like anything, you know, you do something good and then something else is around the corner and you kind of forget about it almost and you don't actually get time to sit down and really reflect on it. And doing that book really helped with that as well. And I wrote it with Tom Fordyce, who he's a chief sports writer for BBC and he was there for the whole tour as well, out there with me. So it was quite easy to sort of uh, to do and enjoyable mm -hmm. another element of the book that I found was like, was really honest and revealing and it kind of spoke to me personally as well was these sort of themes of masculinity and this inclination to be really stoic and, and not really open up even like with your wife in the midst of the Tour de France in the midst of this really important mm. important moment in your life what, what are the roots of this attitude is this is this about how you were raised, or is this something that's bred out of the sport of cycling? I think it's um, just how I am, really. Yeah, and not and yeah, like I say in the book, you know, it was all about just trying to play it down all the time in my head. And even though you know you kind of tell yourself, oh, it's just a bike race or whatever," and it's not, is it? It's the biggest bike race in the world, and it can change your life. And um, but yeah, you just downplay it all the time, and. Um, yeah, it, it, I never tried to get emotional. I was always trying to stay logical, and I'd always done that in the past. But then working a bit with Steve Peters, the sports psychologist, um, just reinforced everything that I was doing anyway, really. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that sort of that sort of attitude and approach, one of the really interesting dynamics in this book is is this tension between yourself and Team Sky's management during the Tour de France, and how you find ways to sort of rationalize their decision to continue prioritizing Chris throughout the majority of the tour. You know, there's the team time trial, mm. there's the Col de Portet, all these, all these vignettes that made headlines, of course. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about how this process plays out in real time. How do you get over these feelings of maybe being a little jilted or feeling a little, uh, just a little disappointed? Uh, it, are you able to get over it quickly? And, and how do you just compose yourself in the midst of the most important bike race of your life? Yeah, I think to start with, you're obviously a bit like, geez, what's going on, guys? Like, and you get a bit sort of maybe frustrated or whatever. But um, yeah, within sort of half an hour or so, you kind of you just think about it, like try and rationalise it and come from their perspective, and and then think at the end of the day, well, it's not going to affect how I go and how I race anyway. So just crack on with it and accept it and move on and, and don't dwell on it and. Especially the team time trial. I was stage three, and you know, if I just let that bug me the whole time, then I would have got. Well, I, I don't think I would have won the race, you know, because mm. it would have just dragged you down the whole time, and just your mood and everything would have just been so, you know, up and down, and your performance would kind of follow that. Mm. Does it keep you up at night at all? Is it hard to fall asleep when you think about things like that? No, not really. It was kind of, you know, once I'd sort of after that initial half hour hour and just sort of rationalized it a bit more how they would be thinking and what they were thinking and it's just uh, that
that was it then, put it to bed and, and move on and just worry about the actual race and not the whole sort of politics of it. Mm. Do those moments, did it impact your overall trust that you have in Team Sky's management? Not really, no, because like I say in the book, you know, Froome had won six Grand Tours, four Tour de France's before that, so it was kind of, you can see why they, you know, if they were, you were going to bet on someone, you'd put it on him and rather than myself, who I hadn't even got a top 10 to that point. So, um, but at the same time, I kind of knew that I had the, the legs to do it and um, they did as well, but I think they were just sort of making sure we were both in the best position to sort of be there and um, yeah, that's how I saw it and that was it, yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason I ask sort of specifically about team management is that, you know, here we are in January and they've got six months, less than six months probably to find a new sponsor for 2020. And it was pretty well, well reported that, um, you know, you had a deal from CCC on the table, uh, you signed a deal with Team Sky and a lot of us thought that meant that Team Sky's future was secure. So kind of what, what's your, What's your state, current state of overall trust with, with Team Sky? I mean, do you trust that they're, they're telling you, yes, we'll be able to find something for 2020? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I believe in Dave and Fran and you know, the team that are out there looking for, for a new sponsor. And you know, the way I see it is we're in the best shape to find one. You know, we're the best bike racing team in the world, if not one of the best sporting teams, really, you know, with the success we've had in such a short space of time. And, um, yeah, like I say, yeah, it's, just, it's the best position to find something and, um, you know, they're going out there and, and doing, working the hardest to, to find that and, um, yeah, got all faith that they can and obviously if they don't then, you know, come, yeah, July, August then you're going to have to um, look elsewhere but, um, yeah, you know, I think the structure and everything there, that the team is proven and everything's in place so it's... Uh, it's not like it's, it's starting from scratch and finding a sponsor having to build everything. So um, you'd think that would be appealing to a lot of uh, companies and or individuals or whatever, really. So um, yeah, we'll see. Time will tell with that, I guess. Are, are you second guessing your decision to extend with Sky at all? No, not at all, really, because um, the reasons I did it were, you know, the fact that I've got three more good years trying to win Grand Tours really and I felt that this team was the best one for me and you know still got next year and then um, yeah I'm confident they'll find something anyway and keep it going and if not then you'll have to uh, go elsewhere and sort of take that risk that I didn't really want to take before which was the reason I stayed but that's the way it goes in it? it's like changes changes happen sometimes they're out of your control and you just got to accept it and, and move on and just stay positive and, and keep you know, doing what you do. Yeah. All right, we'll shift gears away from, it's a little awkward, I realize, <laughs> but we'll shift, we'll shift gears. So, well, maybe it's up to you. You can close your eyes if you want, but <laughs> I, I want you to visualize all the memories from this past year's tour. Um, tell me about the one that's the clearest, uh, sort of the most, the most poignant, the one that's really the memory that's gonna stay with you the rest of your life. I think finishing the time trial, knowing, like finally just accepting and realizing that I'd won the tour. Because up until that point, like I say, I was never thinking about the end. It was always about the next stage or the next climb and the process and eating this at this time and, you know, trying to recover the best and sleeping and all that type of stuff. And then suddenly 
there was nothing else to focus on. It was it was done and I'd won. And that, that elation was just like unreal. And then my wife was there and I didn't know she was going to be there. And like the team had flown her out, especially for the ends of the TT. And because she kind of thinks she's a bit of a bad luck omen because a few times she's come out to a big race and I've crashed out. So, mm. um, yeah, for sure that, that TT was the unreal and something that will always, always stay with me.